0: listeners to the editors desk, the regular first things podcast that I host Rusty Reno, editor of First Things and I am at the editors desk and I have with me via the miracle of the internet Daryl Paul, author of Drag Queens in the February 2023 issue. Daryl is a professor of political science at Williams College. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Rusty, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So, Drag Queens your, your thesis here is that drag is part of this larger queering of mainstream American culture. So what does queering
1: mean? Wow, that's a big question to start off with. I, I think there's a narrow definition and then there's a broad one. So I'll start with the narrow one. And the narrow one is probably obvious to, to most. It has to do with a kind of normalization, I guess I call it that, of of Gay identities and and now well beyond that, right? So in my earlier work from even just five years ago or so, I'd much more use the language of homosexuality or gay, but I think the kinds of identities that have spun out of this kind of phenomenon of of sexuality become so many. And we can just see that because the LGBT acronym just gets longer and longer and longer all the time. So so I use queer as a kind of an overarching umbrella term for for that phenomenon, which I think is quite widely used among academics and proponents as well. So I, I don't think uh, it's anything that one might consider a slur. So it is the normalization of, of these kinds of identities. But I think going beyond that, what queering is, because nowadays one can hear claims that Literally anything and everything can be queered, and I think what that is fundamentally about is the attempt to undermine and and ultimately destroy what one might simply call normality. That there shall not be any kind of social norms and conventions and rules, but one should follow one's passions. Or I think in queer theory, desire for them. Queer theorists, desire is the foundation of the human personality, and so therefore. We should queer everything so that individual human desire can be realized.
0: I think there maybe is some analogy here to early 20th century anarchism. That was more narrowly political, whereas this is cultural. But it was the hope for a way of life that didn't require any organizing political authority. And I think you're right. I think queering is, in this broadest sense, aspires to a social order with no conventional norms, no standard norms, no effectively no commanding cultural authority.
1: Yeah, I think there's a deep faith. Oftentimes, I suspect it's um, implicit rather than explicit, but a deep faith in spontaneous organization, which we might sometimes ascribe more to liberals, right? That the market will just kind of pop up out of the ground and we'll all spontaneously associate with, with each other. And we'll just have the night watchman state who will enforce contracts and you know put the handful of bad guys behind bars. And otherwise, that's it. And I think the left has similar kinds of sensibilities
0: yeah there is a kind of convergence there i've written about that friedrich hayek you know meets Karl popper (laughs) um, the open society and then the open economy there is a utopianism that transcends the left right divide yeah Uh, agreed kind of a death of god we can live without a sacred authority at the center so to speak or above or whatever the metaphor might be drag let's get to drag those specifically drag queens drag shows you say that the drag aesthetic is that of camp what does that mean what is camp or can be
1: so one of the things i Quite frankly, enjoyed a lot about writing this piece is is doing research for it, and uh, one of the things that I went to very early on was yeah. Susan Sontag's famous article, "Notes on Camp." And the reason I went to it in part is because people who are quite prominent in drag talk about camp with some frequency. But also because the 26, or sorry, 2019 costume Institute, right associated with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, had as its theme camp. And so the and, and there was a big drag element to that 2019 costume Institute uh, fundraiser and show. So that's what kind of pushed me in that direction in the first place. And and reading through Sontag's essay, I thought was quite enlightening for what at least many in drag think that they're about and, and think that that the purpose of, of drag is. So Sontag has, has lots of interesting things to say. But the one thing I guess I would pull out for your listeners, Rusty, is her association of camp with artifice. And that's probably the core idea. I think a good way of thinking about this is the difference or distinction between beauty, and glamour. That's the example that I use because I think it's really nice and easy one for people to grasp. Beauty is something that I would say, and I think most people would agree, is, is connected somehow to nature. We might see a beautiful landscape. We might look at uh, a person and find that person to be beautiful, well-proportioned, somehow reflecting of, of an ideal form. Glamour is something radically different, right? One would not say that a landscape, a mountain is is glamorous. Hmm. A person, a person must be glamorous. But a person who is glamorous is not someone who is trying to enhance nature, but to either supersede it or to depart from it. So someone who would wear wigs regularly, who would wear lots and lots of makeup, who would wear glitter, who would wear quite ostentatious loud colors and costumes, that person could be glamorous. And so Sontag talks about camp, and it's very much on the glamour side. It is very much about artifice. It's about individual human beings. And she quotes Oscar Wilde in her piece, and I think this is a nice aspect of of understanding camp too. One should really be a work of art. One should make one's life a work of art. That is, you should make it whatever you want it to be, to express whatever your true self is inside of you. Things that are beautiful, things that are tied to nature in particular, are really anti-camp. And, and she has this great line, and I, I hope I don't uh, misquote her here, but it's something to the effect of, "Nothing in nature can be camp." And I think that's a really nice a nice insight that she has.
0: There's a tension, it seems, in our culture and our relation to queering. On the one hand, the camp side puts an emphasis, as you said, on frivolity playfulness, not taking things too seriously. RuPaul Charles, who's, who's, I guess, is the host of the most popular drag queen show himself a Drag Queen, you quote him as saying, drag, so he sees this is a social value of drag, drag reminds people not to take themselves seriously or life too seriously. So on the one hand, there's a kind of artificiality as an escape from the burdens of, as you say, nature or reality, so to speak. And on the other hand, it's the avenue towards to the real self or to the expression of the real self. Help us with that paradigm. <laughs>
1: So I think the the most important thing to hang on to here, and and I talk about this in the piece, is this transformation of drag from being, I think, quite true to Sontag's understanding of camp. Right? It's about you can be serious in drag, but you have to be serious about the frivolous. You cannot be serious about the serious. That's that's anti camp. One might call that you know sort of drama, if you will. Whereas in the most recent years, Drag has increasingly become serious about the serious. So, so let me kind of do a little bit of uh historical evolution here. I think certainly in the past, drag was, and then still is to a good degree, serious about the frivolous. Right. So the game show theme helps this out. So people ostensibly, right, on, on RuPaul's. Drag Race are in a reality competition show, kind of like Survivor, where they come out and they do performances, they get judged, and the lowest person in the ratings goes home, and then you come back next week and do it all over again. So there's a a seriousness about the frivolous in that people are really competing. People want to win. People perform. They work on their performances. They're very serious about how they put their outfits together and all of this stuff. But it's all about things that are frivolous. But even in the old days of camp, there was a serious cultural, and I would say also political, undertone to it. And that was this fundamental critique through mocking, right, through kind of cutting humor of masculinity. And so RuPaul Charles talks about that as well. So I think that's always been there in drag. So drag hasn't been 100% camp, I think, ever. Sometimes it has been quite serious about the serious that is trying to undermine masculinity. But in the most recent times, it has become absorbed into what I call the therapeutic. And my pieces in First Things um, over quite a few years have, have said, or at least have offered, I've hoped, some insights into the therapeutic. And so I think that's the most recent period in drag where instead of claiming to be all about playing a character and not being serious, it's all of a sudden about the true self and the expression of the true self
0: yeah it's funny you know i guess sort of pure camp would be i'm faking it and i'm proud of it
1: exactly and everyone knows it and everyone's in on the joke as it were yeah.
0: or i'm faking it and the the real me is somebody who loves faking things yeah but that's not what you get from the self reported in the re, in the recent decade you you cite these various shows and people effusing about this is a wonderful opportunity to be the real me and and I guess that's the therapeutic what well, help us with the therapeutic a therapeutic culture I guess a therapeutic culture is one that wants to help everyone be who they already are I guess or something like that I'm not quite sure how to describe a therapeutic culture but it's it's, I guess, in a traditional culture, others are supposed to offer either ideals or discipline to help you attain virtue or whatever the, the highest good is, whereas the therapeutic culture cultures, um, you get to decide for yourself what your ultimate goal is, and we're here to aid and help and, and
1: assist you. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of putting it, Rusty. Yeah, very much so.
0: And that for the therapeutic culture the greatest impediment to people being their real selves are uh, is guilt and shame. i
1: think i think that i think that's fair to say i think in a therapeutic culture there are two great enemies that need to be overcome one of them is repression right a good kind of therapeutic concept mm-hmm. right i dislike myself i find aspects of my character my personality my desire unsavory or or even wrong and evil in some way and so therefore to that that would be repression and so therefore the therapeutic project is to overcome that to find yourself to be good and to find the desires that you have to be worthy and the identity that you feel that you truly are to be a good one etc but the other enemy is oppression and that's a perhaps more traditional understanding right it's more social and political rather than psychological there are forces in the world whatever those forces might be, patriarchy, capitalism, the state, religion, whatever you might want to choose. And so there are these oppressive forces in the world that also must be overcome. So from a therapeutic culture and a therapeutic politics, there's these two simultaneous projects that are supposed to be Complementary to one another. I stop repressing myself, and you stop oppressing me. And so, therefore, we can all be our true selves. And going back to where we started, we can all kind of spontaneously associate with one another in freedom.
0: I guess the Marxist concept of false consciousness is a, a linking between the those two dimensions that you described: the internalized repression and the external oppression.
1: I think that can be, although I think, you know... Although therapeutic
0: culture doesn't usually use that terminology.
1: Right. I, I think false consciousness is... Still, because Marx is a good modernist, and I think the, the 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 therapeutic is very postmodern. So, with false consciousness, there's still this presumption that we can gain access to an objective reality, and Marx claims to know that, and that's the the root of of his work. Whereas the therapeutic, and again, I don't want to attach this too much to current day psychiatrists who are who are who are practitioners of therapy this is really something that is a larger cultural phenomenon i think it's rooted in the work of of people like freud who obviously is the inventor of of therapy as we know it today but is not necessarily tied very tightly to the practices of psychiatry but anyhow that there is something different i think and new in the therapeutic in the 20th century because it is so rooted in the subjective I get to define what is true. My my feelings might be objective in a sense that you can tell that I'm very sad about how you all feel about me, or I even feel sad about myself. But there is this transformation that is supposedly open through therapeutic practices, maybe inside of psychiatry and psychology, but especially out in the larger cultural sphere and in politics, where I can overcome my repression, I can overcome your oppression, and then there's some kind of transformation of our world.
0: You can see the importance, given that description of a therapeutic culture, you can see the importance of both homosexuality and and drag queen. I mean, the notion of coming out It traffics in some of the Emersonian elements of our culture, the courageous affirmation of who I am, you know, over and against the social stigma back in the day when coming out really meant something. But I guess I would say that in a therapeutic culture, the the moral heroes are those who, who openly and ostentatiously flout the social authority or the conventional norms. Uh, And obviously drag queen drag is, as you say, it it's it's the, the text of it or the the obvious dominant thrust of it is to kind of give the finger to norms about how to look and behave as a man.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's. It's romantic, I think, and that's a, a a real heart of 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 drag and the therapeutic, right? The drag is a, an expression, if you will, of the therapeutic. And the romantic has always been about defying convention, being you know who you really are. Overturning norms, all of these kinds of things. So, yeah, I think I think that's that's very much the case. Of course, and the the novelty is that the romantics are no longer the on the margins of society. The romantics have taken over the citadel itself.
0: I, I do think that. I mean, my sense is both male homosexuality and here's this with drag queens. This is male imitation of male what male embrace of feminine, femininity. What have you? I, th- I think this does have a power in the way that lesbianism doesn't, or the butch. There is no kind of shows where women are ostentatiously behaving like men on stage, and I think part of that is rooted in the fact that being female is—I mean, the reality of childbirth and things like that—making make womanhood a kind of more natural condition than manhood, uh, and the manhood is an achieved thing. If you will, in a way that womanhood—it's—it's it's a hard one thing, so to speak—and—and and so as a result, there's just way more. There's way more social authority organized around ushering boys towards manhood than there is ushering women towards uh, womanhood. That's just as Rusty Reno speculating here. You're the social <laughs> scientist. But be that as it may, these these do seem to be focal points po- for political life in our country, which has really fascinated me in the piece, I had no idea about these prominent, progressive political figures, Nancy Pelosi, Otayza Cortez doesn't so much surprise me. But Kamala Harris, I mean, these are, if you will, mainstream, and in the case of Kamala Harris, very ambitious women who want to rise to the top of and they see this as a as a, a stance that is a, as a kind of a winner. For them oh, in the court of public opinion.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the insights that I try to deliver in the article is this relationship between the consumers of drag and gender. Because again, the the text of drag is very much about gender. It is about a deconstruction of masculinity. I think that's just the best way to put it. And the best evidence of that, I think, is. RuPaul Charles himself—he just says it flat out. There's this quite interesting interview that he did with the Guardian newspaper some years ago, and that—that's what he said. And I think that's true. And I think you can't look at a drag show and look at the phenomenon of drag and not agree that it is a fundamentally, yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, right. So let's stop him. So basically, RuPaul Charles is saying, "I love drag. I'm attracted to drag. I'm committed to drag because it helps me get out from underneath burdensome norms about what it means to be a man."
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And he obviously probably thinks he's doing a public service by helping other people get out from underneath those burdensome norms.
1: Sure. And and says as much in the and TV then show. You, you observe in
0: your piece that this appeals, especially to progressive women, because they also um, have as part of their own self-image getting out from underneath the burdensome norms of, of, of men.
1: So some of this, and I guess this is where I come back to things that are explicit, things that are implicit, Mm -hmm. kind of the text and the subtext. I think those, so there's a lot of progressive female politicians who have openly embraced drag. And by that, I mean, they've appeared publicly in prominent places with drag queens, right, with men who are performers of drag and they're in drag. And also going all the way up to kind of the top of the scale with uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, even been on as a judge, a guest judge on RuPaul's drag show. But some several of these have been like right? Nancy Pelosi has been on RuPaul's drag show uh, twice, as a matter of fact. Kirsten Gillibrand during the uh, 2020 presidential campaign associated herself very openly with drag. Right? Kamala Harris had a drag queen to her home as vice president of the United States. And it was kind of a big deal. It was intentional, right? So, so there is this relationship. But I think the I suspect that some of these politicians don't quite see themselves as engaging in a fundamental critique and deconstruction of masculinity, even though I think that's clearly what they're doing. But. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez very much does. I mean, she said as much. She did, uh, you know, she she loves social media. She's very good at it. I think we would all agree on that. And so after the uh, Uvalde, Texas school shooting some months back, she went on one of these, um, you know, Instagram live kind of uh, free association thought moments where she just turned on her phone and for about 50 minutes just kind of spoke extemporaneously uh, on the school shooting. and she very much, I mean this was not the whole theme of it but but for for a couple of moments in that in that monologue, she associated it very much with masculinity that the reason that we have school shootings in America is because patriarchal men, are oppressing women, and people of color, and trans people, and gay people, etc. And, and that's why we have violence in America. And if it wasn't for these kind of outmoded forms of masculinity, I guess, presumably, we wouldn't have violence, or at least not nearly as much violence. And then later on, uh, this is in 2022, she does a an interview in GQ, where she talks a bit more about this. So I think for those who are the most self-aware And I think Ocasio-Cortez is, right? Some of these politicians, like an Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren went to DragCon 2019 and she did it uh, simply to kind of gather up some votes from people. right? right. I, don't know, I don't think uh, Elizabeth Warren knows much of anything about drag. She knows it's good because she's on the left, but she doesn't associate really with it in any significant way. Whereas Ocasio-Cortez is a big drag fan outside of politics and has been for a long time and thinks of drag as exactly this deconstruction of masculinity. Masculinity is bad. And so therefore, drag helps people overcome masculinity and therefore become something else. And I think for Ocasio Cortez that something else is clearly femininity
0: then you note that the subtext of the drag phenomenon is very hostile to women.
1: I think that's true. Others will probably differ in their evaluation, but that's I think ultimately where the 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 piece goes and wants to deliver its kind of biggest claims. so For a long time, there have been feminists who have claimed that drag is misogynistic. Now, you don't hear those arguments very often, and especially since the cultural left in America has embraced drag. It's, well, I guess our modern terminology would be turfy. It's only turfs, right? Trans-exclusionary radical feminists would say that drag is misogynistic, but this has always been part of the claim right that because there is such a parodying of femininity by men that is fundamentally an attack on on women and so when if one watches uh, any amount of of RuPaul's drag race which i did for this piece you'll see that there is an adoption by the performers by male physically biologically male performers of female language. I don't just mean like they wear dresses and wigs and and parade around in false breasts and all of that kind of stuff. Even backstage where they're not wearing any of their costumes and makeup and et cetera, they refer to one another as girls and ladies and women. So there is, I think, this this co-optation, if you will, of not just femininity, but femaleness itself. And then we can go on even further because the
0: the kind of uh, derogatory terminology they use, uh, you know, that uh, what our former president referred to as locker room talk.
1: (laughs) There is is (laughs) a a lot of
0: locker room talk that it sounds like it's uh, coming out of uh, from frat boy's mouth, not from the mouth of a woman talking about another woman.
1: Exactly, and and I say in the piece, and I, I I think this is indisputably true that the kinds of the kind of sexual humor in drag is is indisputably male. This is the way that men. Not all men, I'm not claiming that, but some men will talk about sex in a very crude, aggressive, sometimes even somewhat violent way. But this is all couched in camp. It's so yes. humorous. You're not supposed to be taking it seriously, but it's very crude and very crass. Now, one might say that, you know, well, hey, women can be crude too. And I suppose that's true, right? Samantha Bee was a phenomenon for some years and some amount of women liked her, I guess. So there is this dimension as well, that, that you have men who are, despite their performance of femininity, also still acting in very kind of traditionally masculine ways around sex. But even further than that, in the most recent period in drag, what you see is more and more men, biological men, who are adopting female identities. So they're not just performing a character that is feminine, right? They're wearing wigs, they're wearing dresses, they're wearing false breasts, whatever. But now they're claiming to be women. And so- Trans phenomenon. Exactly. And, and, And this was- at least in not even five years ago, in RuPaul Charles's own view, verboten, right? drag has to be done by biological men performing as women because it is fundamentally a gender critique, right? It's a, it's a deconstruction of masculinity. How can you have women performing as women and making that a critique of masculinity? Right. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And so, but, but this is what you've seen increasingly. And so uh, well, they're getting the, ground, uh,
0: they're getting ground, the rainbow, the rainbow Reich is
1: claiming
0: uh, <laughs> Well, he, the queering of the queering is, up, he, big, is, uh, is happening as we
1: speak. Even drag was not queer enough. Exactly. And I think that's what RuPaul found out. And so he changed, right? He he overturned his fundamental principle of drag after just a few months of of getting critiqued.
0: Right. I, I think that this, this, I think, bodes poorly for the fan base. As you point out, the fan base for this is increasingly or majority straight progressive women. And I, I think you give a very persuasive explanation about it's an atmosphere of femininity without the threat of masculinity. But still, it's hovering in the background. I mean, these are men, after all, who are pretending to be women. And I would submit also that the self-evidently male sexuality that's expressed in these crude and aggressive forms of humor is actually part of the appeal. Because I don't think straight progressive women want to be in a m- women-only zone. I mean, they actually want to be around men. So they want to. they want some reminder that these are, in fact, men, but at the same time, they want men who are completely non-threatening, you know, that have completely assimilated to to their emotional uh, needs and, and emotional sort of wavelength. I think it's a kind of female fantasy, actually, real, live men who, you know, can connect with them uh, the way, you know, the way that, you know, women connect with women.
1: So there certainly is an argument here, and I guess uh, for the purposes of of this discussion, I'll be agnostic on. But but one of the things I I had thought about writing about and including in the piece, and wound up not including it because I just didn't see how it would fit very well, is this trope of the the the, quote gay best friend unquote, Mm -hmm. and that's really common in literature. And that would fit with my theory exactly, and that would that would fit with your theory, Russi. I
0: I, got to say, I, I the most arresting. Element of the piece is your observation about drag queen story hour being the Sunday school of the therapeutic. It really helped me understand why kind of a progressive woman with a you know five year old child will beautifully take the child to the library for drag queen school story hour, or you give the example of a Dallas event, which is you know you know quite lewd. So exposing your children to a very sexualized environment. This is seen as being it's like enrolling your children in a kind of enrichment program. You're 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 doing your this is all for their this is all for their benefit because they're getting kind of a, a full dose of the therapeutic the therapeutic culture. So that really helped me see that. I really appreciate that. Because I, I, I was just genuinely baffled as to like what are what are people thinking when they take their kids to these events?
1: Yeah, the the surface is toleration. So it's good to expose kids to other ways of being and other ways of living. But yeah, you don't have to scratch too hard to see all of the therapeutic values there. And so one can just simply look at the kinds of books that the drag queens choose to read to children. Some of them are, you know, pretty obvious kinds of books about, you know, kids who, you know, uh, a kid who has two moms or two dads or the drag queen will read that or the drag queen will read a story about a kid who a boy who wants to dress like a girl right and, and so by the end of the book everyone endorses this child right those kinds of things but lots of the books are not obviously about sexual identity at all they're about being your true self mm-hmm. and having everyone therefore celebrate your true self and they can be a they can have nothing to do in the book
0: It's a kind of liturgy for therapeutic culture, these drag queen story hour type events.
1: I suppose they could be, right? Because so many of them are intermittent. So if you can, you know, you can go online and you can find the organization that that, that does these things regularly all across America and and in many, many countries as well. But so many of these are just pop-ups where you get a librarian in this particular town and a handful of parents who want to do it. And so they invite the local drag queen over and it's kind of a one-off, but the form is always the same. It's always the same kind of thing. So in that sense, I guess you could say it kind of has a liturgical element, or it certainly at least has a, a kind of an educational orientation, right? Where you're really trying to instill particular kinds of values in the kids that are there.
0: Let's bring this to a close with, I guess, this one, well you don't know, don't talk about this in the essay, but I, I would say that uh, this phenomenon and how mainstream it has become, does not bode well for social conservatives. I mean, it suggests that our culture is really, really very far advanced now in the triumph of the therapeutic to to um, echo Philip Reese's book.
1: I have had some people who um have offered, you know, critique, but some of it, you know, kind of meaningfully constructive critique in suggesting that I'm I'm implying that drag is making America therapeutic. And I think it's quite the opposite. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, America is making drag drag therapeutic. America has been therapeutic for a long time. This has not just come up with RuPaul Charles. This has not just come up with same-sex marriage or the normalization of homosexuality. America has been therapeutic, I would say, at least uh, since the end of World War II uh Philip Reeve's book, obviously, is in the early 1960s. And if you want to think about the romantic roots of the therapeutic, I mean, the romantic movement is the 19th century. But I think you're right, Rusty, that this is very, very far evolved. And so, especially when you look at it among the younger generations, the therapeutic sensibility is the, the obvious one for people under a certain age. I don't know what that age might be, 40, 30 and so it really has conquered the the youngest generations. It's not to say that there's not some political pushback. And, and there is, and there has been some political pushback by some members of Congress who I think are more just kind of performing outrage. I don't think anything's going to come of that, but more so at the state level. Uh, So you see it in states like Wyoming or Texas or Florida, there have been actual laws that have been passed to regulate drag and to regulate uh, transgender kinds of therapies and the way that schools engage with transgenderism and gender identity. So I think there is uh, some good evidence that at least the the, the challenge has been met, or at least it's been engaged. Maybe met is a little too strong a word, mm-hmm. but but I think that the advance of the therapeutic culture is not wholly, not wholly without obstructions, but it certainly is the, the dominant culture in America, and I think has been for a good long time, which is why I think drag has become so mainstream, which is why I think uh, same-sex marriage became not just the law of the land, but something that we don't even argue about anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for this great piece, Daryl, and thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. I'm really glad to be here, Rusty, and thanks for the invitation.